We will continue our examination of values, Dale Bible Church. And we shared last week, and we began a conversation about uh, the importance of relationships. And we look primarily at those relationships in the context of amongst one another in the church. Um, this morning, uh, we'll look at the perspective of relationships with those outside of the church. And so I'll read the statement as a whole as it pertains to uh, relationships and the value of them at Dale Bible Church. We say we value relationships, therefore we strive to mutually care for fellow believers by encouraging, edifying, equipping, and serving one another from a heart of worship to the Lord. We equally commit to cultivate relationships with unbelievers, demonstrating the love of Christ and proclaiming the gospel to them in word and in deed. Not only are the relationships between the body of Christ valuable and necessary, as we saw last week, but there's also the value and necessity of relationships with those outside the church. Now, you cannot have the same level of relationship. In fact, this morning in our, our, our time downstairs in our men's study, we were talking about uh, the discipline of friendship. And part of our conversation centered around the reality that you cannot have the same level of friendship with an unbeliever that you can with a believer. But nonetheless, there is still an importance to be placed upon having meaningful relationships with those who need Christ. Because the church of Jesus Christ, she cannot be faithful to her mission if it only exists within the walls of a building. And I do not mean that the church should simply be held in other places in order to establish an influence in the world. What I mean is the church, that is the body of Christ, must be intentional about cultivating relationships with unbelievers. Because the simple reality is that without the intentionality of connecting with people and building relationships for the purpose of redemption of those who need redemption in Christ, the church is not being faithful to the call of Christ. If the church, those who know Christ, are not intentionally trying to impart the need for redemption by Christ to those who do not have it, she is not faithful to the task of the church. This is, right after, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind, love your neighbor as yourself. And we said last week about love for one another within the body. This is the distinguishing feature of the church. This separates the church from the world, the love that exists amongst one another within. But the love for one another within overflows to the outside that others might see the love of Christ also. So we must be intentional to connect and to cultivate, to pursue relationships with those who need Christ. The body of Christ is to be going that's the essence of what Jesus says in what we call the Great Commission to his disciples. As you go, or go, therefore, is how, it's re- how it reads in our translations. But what's, what the, the original language is communicating is, as you are going. It's not a command to go. It's an assumption that you are going. And he says, as you're going, make disciples. And how do you do that? By teaching people what God's word says. Teaching people about their need for Jesus and about their need for the forgiveness of their sins and their sinful state before God. And so Jesus says, as you're going, you're teaching people these things. 
And we think about this reality of going and teaching and making disciples. This morning, as we've already found, I I trust by now, 2 Corinthians 5, the point that the Apostle Paul is going to make in our text is that ultimately it's the love of Christ that compels believers to be about cultivating relationships with unbelievers. Right? See, everything as it pertains to relationships, it all centers around the reality of God's love. Our relationships one to another are rooted in the fact that we love as Christ has loved us. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Love one another just as I have loved you. Right? And so it's the same reality when we think about this idea of going out and loving and cultivating relationship with unbelievers. Because the truth is, there is a message that the church has that the unchurched needs. And the message in its simplest form is be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. And what's implied in that message is the reality that if you need to be reconciled, you are estranged. We live in a world that has no concept of being estranged from God because at its core, it denies the very existence of God. It denies an accountability to God. It denies God as a creator. It denies God as a sustainer. There's no concept of needing to be reconciled to God because our concept of God is not great. And so the church... Those who have been reconciled have this understanding of having been reconciled. Now you, we, the church, is to go and implore people to be reconciled. And Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded, excuse me, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him for who their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So there's some ramifications here. There's a reality as it pertains to uh, God's love in the lives, in the lives, not the lives, in the lives of those who know Christ. Paul says it controls us. It's the motivating factor. It's the determiner of what we do and why we do it. And the first thing I want us to see and understand this morning is that Christ's love compels us to relationship with others. It's Christ's love for us, okay? It's the understanding of Christ's love in in sacrifice his own life, that we are compelled to tell others about their need for Christ, to tell others about the love of Christ. It compels us to relationship with others. See, this is the reason why the body seeks to build relationships with those who don't yet belong to the body of Christ. This idea is found in this phrase, the love of Christ controls us. I love how the New English Bible renders this. It literally says the love of Christ leaves us no choice. Understanding 
the significance and the magnitude of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in sacrificing himself for your redemption so that you can be reconciled to God leaves you no choice but to tell others about what Christ has done. And it's not just amongst one another, right? Because as believers, we already have some level of understanding, at least a foundational one. If we've trusted Christ, there's a foundational level of understanding of who he is and what he has accomplished. And so if believers are left with no choice but to speak of the love of Jesus, it must infer that it's to those who have not yet understood the love of Jesus. And so it leaves us with no choice but to cultivate relationships with those who are outside the church. If we claim to understand love and only on the basis of the fact that God first loved us, then we must love others, both in and out of the church. It's not optional. We don't get to decide, well, those people aren't lovable. Those people don't deserve to be loved. I don't really feel like loving those people. Well, you might not. But God's word doesn't say, well, when the influence of Christ in your life is strong enough, then love some people. When you feel like it, proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. The word of God says, as you're going, implore people to be reconciled to God. Why? Because you understand the love of Christ. You understand the greatest need. The reality, I want to submit, maybe it goes without being said this morning, is that before we can truly love others, we must truly love Christ. I believe there's a lot of people in churches just like ours who know what the Word of God says, and they might even have an understanding of salvation, and they, I, 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 maybe, maybe they've even trusted Christ, but they don't love Jesus. They don't have a love for Christ. They're not motivated by Christ and what Christ has declared and what Christ has for his church. And what that fleshes itself out to is not being motivated by his love to reach others with it. But our love for Christ and the love of Christ is literally to be who we are. For the church, the love of Christ, it's our identity. I don't know if you realize that or not, but what makes us the church is the love of Christ. It's literally our identity. Our identities, what makes us who we are or the kind of people we are, that is what we love. Our identities are what we love. More specifically, our identity is shaped by what we ultimately love or what we love as ultimate. Okay, so whatever the priority is. What, it, what, at the end of the day, gives us a sense of meaning, purpose, understanding, and orientation to our being in the world. So it's the grid by like how we're viewing things and we're interpreting things and who we are and, and, and the world and everything that goes with it, right? What we desire or love ultimately is a vision of what we hope for or what we think the good life looks like, Okay? What we desire or what we love is ultimately a vision of what we hope for or what we think the good life looks like. 
This vision of the good life shapes all kinds of actions and decisions and habits that we undertake, often without thinking about it. This is very similar to values as we've talked about, right? So when I say that love defines us, I don't mean our love for the Chicago Cubs or chocolate chip scones, but rather our desire for a way of life. Our ultimate love or desire is shaped by practices, not ideas that are merely communicated to us. That was a quote that I realized I did not, um, I did not include in my notes where that came from. So I will get that back to you. I don't want to take that. That wasn't mine. That was a, a direct quote here. Our ultimate love is shaped by practices, not by ideas that are communicated. That's the essence of that entire paragraph that I just read. That ultimately, it's what we do that communicates who we are, not what we say or what we know. It's what we do. And if we love, if what we love is Christ, then our actions must meet his expectations. You can't claim to love Christ and live contrary to what he's declared. We don't simply ponder ideas that are communicated. We don't engage with the Word of God and say, man, that sounds pretty good. That might be a good idea. That might be a way to go. That might be a a thing to believe. That might be something to follow. We don't simply ponder what's communicated to us from the Word of God. And to truly love Christ is to love others. After all, this is what Christ has commanded, right? Those who are outside of our circles, because he loved others, and because he called us to love others. And as we've seen the New English translation, the love of Christ leaves us no choice but to love others, to actually love others. Not talk about loving others, not think about loving others, not, not think it's a good idea, but to actually love others. In the New Testament, Paul would be writing in number of places in the book of Galatians, he says, look, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. There's there's no distinction. All people are the same. And we'll look at this in a minute. They're in Christ or they're not. Right? And a love for Christ compels us to view people through this lens. And to implore those who are in the camp that are not reconciled to Christ to be reconciled to Christ. Why? Out of a love for him. And it's, I would submit to you that it's silly to think, and this, some of you may think this is a, is a bold statement. I don't know. I think it's silly to believe or to think that you can actually know and possess salvation without having a love for Christ. Because when you come to understand the redemptive work of Jesus and the, the, just the holiness and the perfection of who God is and, and, and the, just the horrors of who we are as sinful people and that Christ in his grace and in his mercy gave his own life to redeem us as those people. Not when we were good, but when we were sinners, Christ died for us is what Paul told the church at Rome. Okay, And so when this, when this takes place, like when you understand the depths of your depravity 
And as best as you can, the magnificence of the holiness of God, you can have no response but to love Jesus. And if you say, well, you know what, I think, I, I, don't, I don't know that I really love Jesus. I don't know that I really, I don't, I don't know that I really, um, I, I mean, I understand, you know what the Bible says about needing to be saved, but I don't know that I really love Jesus. And you don't really understand your depravity. Because if you knew in your heart of hearts just how wretched you were and Christ died, you, you can have no response other than love. You see, think about the world we live in. It hates God. It hates the very mention of Christ. It hates the mention of accountability to a God who is sovereign, who is just, who is holy, and who is right. Why? Because they don't understand his love. And if we in the church claim to, to, to have that salvation and have an appreciation for God, then you, you got to love him. You can't not. And as much as I think it's silly to, to think that you can know and possess salvation and have this, thirst of this thriving, flourishing relationship without having a love for Christ, I would submit it's as equally as silly to think that we can know and possess salvation without having a love for one another that's evidenced by our desire and willingness to cultivate relationships with them for the purpose of redemption. If our identities and who we are is driven by what we do, not what we know, if we say we love God and yet we don't proclaim his word to those who need it, do we really love God? The reality is, if the love of Christ controls us, as Paul says here, if the love of Christ leaves us with no choice, if we neglect what God has clearly communicated, why would we look in the mirror and think the love of God is in us? The sheer magnitude of his redemptive work should compel us to love not only him, but others. Because the only difference between those in the church who know Christ and those outside of the church is that they don't know Christ. They're not made of anything different than we are. They, they function just like we do. Paul told the church at Ephesus that you were dead in your trespasses and sin. You and I, we were dead prior to Christ. And those in the world who don't know Christ, they're still dead. They're dead in their trespasses and their sins. And Paul's writing here to the church at Corinth, and he's saying, the love of Christ, it compels us to tell them. Because they need to know, and they need to understand salvation. And I want you to understand, when I talk about having a love for Jesus and having a love for others, and if you don't love Jesus, I would say it's fair to question whether or not you understand salvation. I'm not telling you that you love in order to be saved. I'm telling you that you love because you are saved. It's a non-negotiable. And it's not just love for Christ. It's for others, those who need to be reconciled. To truly love others is to seek to meet their greatest need. And we ought not neglect physical needs, but every person's greatest need is to be reconciled to God. And the love of Christ compels us 
to implore people to this end. Be reconciled to God. And this is best carried out in a meaningful relationship. I've never read a story, I've never heard an account of anybody who came to faith in Christ by a stranger posting on Facebook or picketing on the corner. Every single one of you in this room who truly knows Christ as Savior knows Christ as Savior because somebody who knew Christ as Savior loved you enough to tell you the truth of God's word when you were not in Christ. And that's our task. To love those who need Jesus. Not because they deserve to be loved, but because they need Jesus and he has loved us. I was once told, probably said this before, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That's the context of the relationship. Again, I've, I've never met anybody who said, yeah, I came to faith in Christ when, you know, the guy on the corner just walked by me and said, hey, you're going to hell if you don't trust Jesus. You better trust Jesus. Now, again, I'm not saying we shouldn't talk to people on the streets and we're coming and we're going, Okay. But almost every experience of interacting with people that know Christ, their experience of trusting Christ came on the heels of a relationship with someone who knew them and who loved them and who told them the truth. And God's love compels us to tell the truth. But it doesn't just compel us to action. To truly understand the love of God, it does compel us to action, but it also changes the focus of our lives. It changes the focus. Notice what Paul says in verse 15. And he, that's in reference to Jesus, died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him for whom their sake died and was raised. So he died so that those who would come to understand that he died would live not for their own sake, but for his. And this changing of our focus is a big reason why we seek redemptive relationships with those who need Christ. He died so that we might not live for ourselves, but for the sake of the one who was raised. I don't know that there's a better life verse. There's a number of them. But anybody who said that their life verse was Galatians 2.20, I could get behind that. Paul, writing to the church at Galatia, says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pretend for a moment that someone did something extravagant and the result of whatever they did was literally saving your life literally saved your earthly life. How would you repay them? I would imagine you would do everything that you knew to do in order to make sure that that person that saved your life knew you were grateful. You go to them and you might say something like, how can I ever repay you for saving my life? And if you know Christ... Your life has been saved. And if you were to ask this question to Christ, the one who has saved your life, I would submit to you that his response would sound something like this. Love me 
and love others. God, you saved my life. How could I ever repay you? Love me and love others. You see, the reality is he has already answered this question. He's made it clear that those who love him are to focus uh, what it is that they're to focus upon. Not themselves, but him. And if you focus upon him and you understand what he's communicated in his word, then you know focusing upon him compels you to love others. So we love him and we love others. I have no issues with saying that when a person trusts Christ, following their salvation, they ought to spend their lives demonstrating that they're grateful for God's provisions. Living in faithful obedience to who he is and to what he's declared in light of your understanding of what he has done for you. It's not so that you can be made right with him, okay? Your living for God is not so that he could look upon you and be satisfied because that'll never happen. You live for the glory of Christ because you understand that you've been justified. So you live a life that demonstrates a thankfulness of heart and attitude and mind to God for all that he's done. In Pixar's 1995 movie, we're introduced to some little lovable green guys. We call them aliens. And they live in a claw machine inside a a video game, inside a place called Pizza Planet. And by now you might know that we're referencing the movie Toy Story. You guys all know Woody, there's a snake in my boots, and Buzz Lightyear to infinity and beyond. But this morning I find inspiration not in the heroes of the story, but in the little green guys. And in the follow-up to Toy Story, where we're introduced to the little green guys in the claw, in Toy Story 2, there's a scene where the toys, go with me here, are driving a truck, all right? There's, I don't remember now which one's which, I think Slinky's on the floor pushing the pedals, and Rex, which is really funny because he's got tiny arms, he's driving the truck, right, the Tyrannosaurus, and somebody's navigating, and they're riding in the passenger seat, and and as the truck is driving, you see there's a string of the little green aliens from the claw machine hanging on the rear view mirror. And when they're driving this truck, following the guy, I don't actually even remember why they're following him, but they're, they're following this guy, driving real recklessly, and Buzz steering. Actually, I lied. It was Buzz. It wasn't, it wasn't the, the dinosaur. It was Buzz who was driving. And Buzz turns really hard to the left. And when he turns to the left, the little strip of aliens on the rear of the mirror comes flying off, and they go flying out the window. And right as they're flying out the window, Mr. Potato Head reaches up and grabs them. And they, of course, bounce alongside the car for a minute. And then he yanks them back into the car. All throughout the rest of this movie, the little green guys follow Mr. Potato Head around proclaiming, you saved our lives. We are eternally grateful. You saved our lives. We are eternally grateful. You saved our lives. We are eternally grateful. And just as annoying as that was for you just now, that's exactly what they present in the movie, right? Like Mr. Potato Head is overwhelmed. Like he's so annoyed by these little green guys following him around. I want to fast forward one last time to Toy Story 3. It's towards the end of the movie. And for whatever reason, the toys are in an incinerator. I'm going to tell you right now, as a grown man, I thought I was going to cry when I watched Toy Story 3. 
Because the whole band, the whole gang, they were in the line of trash to be dumped into the incinerator. And I'm not kidding when I tell you it's emotional and it gives you all the feels. Because they're like telling each other bye. And I mean, it's the real deal. Like Woody and Buzz and Bo Peep and Rex and Slinky, they're all cooked. And they're riding along fast tracking to the incinerator. And just before they're dumped in and melted down to nothing, at the very last second, this giant claw comes down from above them and scoops out a big mess of stuff that includes all the toys, all the rubbish that's getting ready to be dumped into the incinerator. And who do you think is operating the big claw? None other than the little green aliens. What's my point? My point is... Their lives were saved, and they understood it. And at the end of the day, they saved lives. Now, you and I, I trust by this point, we know we don't actually have the ability to save anyone. But I also trust you get the point of the illustration. If our lives have been saved, then we must make it our aim to see others' lives saved. It's literally like we walk around telling God, you saved our lives and we are eternally grateful. You saved our lives and we are eternally grateful. And he doesn't say, well, how do I know you're eternally grateful? Because he just watches. And he just sees. Do you love him? Do you love others? Because if you love him and you love others, you'll never have to say with your mouth, "Uh, you saved my life and I'm eternally grateful. Because he knows. But why? Ultimately, why? Why do we walk around with a disposition that says, God, you saved my life and I'm eternally grateful? Because, as Paul illustrates both here in 2 Corinthians 5 and, and as well as Galatians, as we've looked at, because if we've trusted Christ for salvation, if we've been reconciled to God, then there is a foundational understanding that says, we now know that our life is not our own. We have been called by the one who saved our lives to love him and to love others. And you cannot love others if your focus is upon yourself. That's why Paul says, it's no longer my life that I live. It's not my life. It's his. We live not for ourselves, but we live for him. This is verse 15. For him and for whom sake he died and was raised. So we're controlled by the love of Christ, focusing not on ourselves, but upon him and others. And as we do this, we come to know and understand that his love causes us to see people as he sees them. As we live our lives for him, we understand that his love causes us to see people as he sees them. Paul says, from now on, therefore... Because of what Jesus did, verse 14 and 15, really even before that, but we started in 14. Because of what he did, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. What is he saying? Well, I'm going to ask you to be honest with me for just a second. 
uh, hopefully you're always honest with me, but when you consider people, automatically, every time, you and I both, when we consider people, we look at them and we form an opinion. Right, wrong, or indifferent. Everybody you cross paths with, you form an opinion about them. And the reality is, if we don't know them or don't know them well, we base that opinion completely upon what we can observe with our eyes. But as we see in Paul's comments here, viewing people this way is not how the church is to view people. He says that though they and he as well once regarded people according to the flesh, he does so no longer. The flesh is the physical aspect of a person. And this is in distinction to the immaterial soul of a person. So when we think of the flesh as described by Paul, it's exactly what you would think it is. It's the material makeup of a person. Okay? It's the material makeup of a person. And Paul says that he will no longer regard people according to the flesh. Why? Because he no longer regards Christ that way. And if he no longer regards Christ that way, then he can't regard people any other way than how Christ regards them. You see, at one time, Paul had a worldly view of Jesus. He had a a fleshly view. He believed Jesus was a heretic, that he was a liar, and that he deserved to die. And he believed so strongly in that message that after the death of Jesus, after the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 8, Paul has been given permission to scour about the lands and apprehend anybody who who belongs to the way, is what Acts chapter 9 says. He's been given permission to go around and, and, and take hostage, bring back to Jerusalem in bondage, in chains, Anybody who claims to belong to Jesus. But as I trust we know the story in Acts chapter 9, as Paul was making his way to Damascus, his life changed. And he no longer viewed Jesus in a worldly sense or in a fleshly sense. When he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he now understood Jesus in the spiritual sense. Who he was, why he had come what he had accomplished. You see, it wasn't enough for Paul to know stuff about Jesus, which he surely knew a lot of things about Jesus prior to his conversion, but Paul didn't know Jesus prior to his conversion. He needed to believe in Jesus. And so now Paul, having been transformed by Jesus, he views people the way that Jesus views them. Not according to the flesh, not the externals, but he views them by the fact that they, all people, need to be redeemed by Christ. Every person you meet is in one of two places, in Christ or not in Christ. You see, it's tough because you can't see that. You can't walk by people on the street and see who's in Christ And see who's not in Christ. If we're honest, we try. And usually, we're really good at trying with those who we know aren't in Christ. Based on their externals. 
We do the same thing, though, for those who we believe are in Christ based on what they do. Often cases, they're externals as well. But you see, a love for Christ causes us to see people as he sees them. Not somebody who is a hindrance to my goal or my objective. Not somebody who is uh, on the opposite side of the aisle and has a different position than I do and they're an enemy to be won or defeated. Not as somebody who is different than me and so somebody else can deal with them, somebody else can go to them. I mean, that, that person there, they probably got baggage and they've been through this and they've been through that. And, and, and listen, I know I'm not the only one who's thought things like, they're probably not even interested in Jesus. Uh, raise your hand for me if you're the discerner of hearts and you know who is and who isn't interested in Jesus. I, I don't. But how I view people when I see them in passing, coming, and going, how I view them will determine how I interact with them. And if we've understood the love of Christ, and we understand that we are compelled to relationship with others, and our lives have, the focus of our lives have been changed, they're not our lives, they're His, then that has to change how we view people. We have to view them not as we want to view them, but as God would view them. And so we must look past the externals because these people live in light of a need that is redemption to Christ. In an article, um, man, I'm slacking. I, I, I left this lady's name out too. I'll, I'll get both of these to you. But in an article I was reading through this week, uh, this lady writes of her time as a student at Harvard, and she says, One discovery was a time-released revelation to me. On my way to classes each week, I'd been passing Emerson Hall, the building that houses the philosophy department at Harvard. And the enormous inscription above the front doors and columns of Emerson reads, What is man? And to me, it seemed an appropriate facade for a philosophy building. Then one afternoon, I happened to look up at the same monument that, uh, the same, excuse me, the same moment that a heavy wind blew. And the branches of a tree shifted to reveal that there was actually more to the inscription. And the entire inscription reads, What is man that thou art mindful of him? It's a verse from the Bible, the odd rhetorical question of King David in Psalm 8-4, and it is the most appropriate facade for any building because the only way to accurately view humanity is through God's eyes. You see, our ability to look past externals and see people as God sees them starts with our ability to see that God looked past our externals and redeemed our souls. What am I that the holy God of the universe was mindful of me? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Have you ever looked in the mirror and for one second thought, what am I that God, that God is mindful of me? That God gave his perfect, spotless, sinless son to redeem the wretch that I am. What is God that he is mindful of me? If we adopted this perspective, we might have a little more compassion for those who still need Christ. 
Are you mindful of the lost? If you're honest, if you can be honest with yourself, maybe you want to tell your spouse the answer to this question. As you gather, you, maybe you read your Bible and you're, you're doing the best you can to walk with Christ and live out your salvation. If you're honest even in those things, do you view yourself better as those who need Jesus? Ah, somebody will tell them. Ah, they're probably not interested. Ah, they're too far gone. Ah, ah, ah. If we say the love of Christ is in us, and have not love for people. You know what John says? You're a liar and the truth is not in you. If you're going to love people, it's going to start from the perspective of the fact that God loved you when nothing in you was lovable. We see people every day who do not deserve the love of God. And you see that person when you look in the mirror long before you pass them in the street. And yet so much of our lives are lived just absorbing the love of God for us and not considering the fact that God was mindful of man. And if I've trusted Christ, he was mindful of of me. We ought to look in the mirror and praise God for the fact that he was mindful of us and we ought to challenge ourselves to be mindful of the lost. What is God that he is mindful of them? What is God that he is mindful of me? What is God that he is mindful of any of us? The love of Christ causes his church to see people as he sees them. We value relationships. Therefore, we strive to mutually care for fellow believers by encouraging, edifying, equipping, and serving one another from a heart of worship to the Lord. And we equally commit to cultivate relationships with unbelievers, demonstrating the love of Christ and proclaiming the gospel to them in word and in deed. Christ has loved us. And knowing his love for us, we love others, both in and out of the church. His love, it compels us to action, it changes our focus, and it causes us to see people as God sees them. May this be the heartbeat of each of our lives because we value relationships.